Welcome to the Cabana. This is the Mike Stoker Podcast. I'm Dean Wilson with Mike Stoker and Nolan Anderson. Glad you've joined us. We are a multi-generational podcast, a baby boomer, a Gen X, and a millennial. We're sitting in a cabana 30, about a half a mile from the Pacific Ocean. It's beautiful today, as always. Nolan, welcome. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Dean. Uh, if you haven't had a chance, we'd encourage you to check out episodes one, two, and three on the California recall, Afghanistan, and episode three was a scorecard of the first 200 days of the Biden administration. Here at the Mike Stoker Podcast, we try to keep it informative, insightful, truthful, joyful. We're making sense of things, trying to cut through the spin and the angling that we see so often, the fighting uh, to get to real truth and real policy and real things that matter to you and me. So that's what we're doing here, and we're so glad that you are here with us. Uh, we, before we get to today's topic, which is the environment, um, I thought we could dip back in real quickly, Nolan, to previous episodes in terms of updates by way of updates in California. If you are not aware, we have a, a special election coming on September 14th. It's a recall election. Um uh, the decision is whether to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. And then the second question is, if so, pick a candidate among about, I believe, 50 uh, that are on the ballot. So we have that recall coming. Um, and it's an interesting. It's a real interesting time, short window, and a lot is happening. But, Nolan, any updates on the, the recall election? Any any millennial love for Gavin Newsom Anyone? emerging that you can are aware yeah. of? Yeah, you know, I've been talking to some of my friends and kind of poke things out and you know tease things out of them, saying, "Okay, we really like this guy. What do you think?" And I think the same thing comes back every time: is really this guy? Uh, you know, I really don't. I may not want to be voting for someone on the other side, but I really don't so like. So there's Newsom. not an enthusiasm. There's for not him. an no, and I think you know, like I said the other, the other time. I, and like Mike, you brought this up. They doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if you're 90 or you're, you just you just turned 18 and you're this is your first election. You can kind of smell that this person is elitist. Is there like you were talking, Mike, last in one of the last episodes? Rules for thee, not for me. You know, I can do it, but you you know you have to wear a mask. And that doesn't play do well with millennials. That doesn't play well with millennials. They know they can smell it. They they know an uneven playing field when they see it. And they know that, that Newsom does not play and does not want to play in the same playing field that he's making for the rest of us. So, so that kind of leads me to a question, Mike, just to touch on the recall before we get to the environment. The energy factor in this recall election. Where is the energy? I mean, oh, it's 100% on the side of the recall. Um, I mean, if you do any of the polls will just will show you. I mean, and Democrats have acknowledged it. You know, Democrats have said, you know, what we're worried about is, you know, there's 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 not that energy for people saying, you know, we have to get out there and, you know, Newsom's this great governor and, you know, we we can't let, you know, we can't lose him as our governor. Uh, even even the, the people opposed to the recall are, are are using the scare tactic saying, well, you know, you, you can't let Newsom, you know, we can't let this recall be successful because, Larry Elder's this extreme right wing person, which we talked about that on the last show is, you know, that's when you're in politics doing negative campaigning, you're afraid you're running. You usually are afraid that you're running behind. Uh, when you think you're running ahead, you run positives. I guarantee if Newsom thought that this is a slam dunk recall, 
he'd be running all these puff commercials on how wonderful he is and just to promote himself for hopefully being president someday. Um, so, you know, the energy is definitely on the recall side uh, and it's definitely on the Republican side. And Larry Elder, I think, brought that much more. You know, they're they're doing recall uh, you know, um, uh, recall barbecues all over the state. I had a friend, you know, in Bakersfield, I got that had one over the weekend and like 300 <laughs> people came to their house. Um, I guarantee that if you had a, you know, save, uh, you know, save elitist, uh, Newsom rally at your house, probably 300 people aren't going to show up and unless they're offering, you know, free beer, wine, and, you know, something to eat, but uh, only be $300. Though. <laughs> right. That's right. So, um, I mean, the, there's no question. I think the, you know, the, the momentum is on the side of the recall. I think last week, as I recall, Governor Newsom, he sent out a fundraising letter and his fundraiser wasn't about, you know, hey, I've done a great job and I hope I can count on your support. His fundraising letter to try to raise money was Larry Alder's two points away from being our next governor. You should be afraid. And so you need to ante up. So it's not a save save you know keep me in the governor's mm -hmm. office because of great job i've been doing the campaign by newsom and then the the no on recall is you know you need to be afraid of the alternative because mm -hmm. they can't talk about the you know they they don't want the you can't defend things like him going to the fundraiser in napa when he had shut down all california and businesses were going out of business and nobody was wearing a mask and nobody was social distancing, you know, drinking $300 bottle of wine. They can't defend that. So you got to divert away from that to, you know, don't focus on that because if you focus on that, we're going to lose the recall. Let's try to convince people that this is a, a crazy right wing, you know, Larry Alder running and, and the horrible things are going to happen in California. And as I've already mentioned, when, when you're running that kind of campaign, you might be successful. People win negative campaigns all the time, but it means they're uh, they're running scared and they're and they're they believe truly that they that the energy on the other side, you know, is real and that's why this recall would be could be successful. And I think when you think of a, a Democrat state, for it to just be where they're that concerned means the energy has to be that much stronger on the other side, or a recall could never be successful in a state that I think the Democrats out outnumber percentage-wise Republicans by over 20%. Wow. So stay tuned. September 14th, uh, we'll, we'll have more on that uh, in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. But the, the election on September 14th, we've been talking about Afghanistan. Uh, we're heading for what the Taliban has referred to as a red line yeah. on August 31st, where all Americans and, and allies are supposed to be out of the country. Mm -hmm. But Nolan, anything new? that the listeners may want to know about before yeah, we head into this next topic. Yeah, so Monday, um, just to remind listeners, on Monday we had a a report put out by, or the a conference with the Taliban saying, it's this is the red line, if you cross it, serious consequences, and the Biden administration had about 24 hours to figure out, okay, are we going to withdraw? Are we going to stay? What's, what's this going to happen going forward? And so um, earlier this week, Biden decided that they will stick to the August 31st deadline um, to withdraw troops from the Afghan uh, from Afghanistan. Um, there's been numerous efforts getting F U.S. Um, citizens and NGO workers that are not at the airport from wherever they are around the country, around Kabul, to the airport. Um, a lot more than this administration has been 
have been flooding on that have been happening. Um, but most, I think, shockingly, is that the Taliban has reported in a, in a press conference earlier this week that the Kabul airport has been closed to Afghanis. Um, Afghanistan. Meaning that all those Afghan interpreters that didn't make it to the yes. airport and there's thousands there's of stuff. them, they're not getting that. They're yeah. not getting out. Yeah, they're not exactly. Um, and apparently it's in order to limit the crowds of people attempting to flee and to keep educated citizens in the nation. So it's, it's all in the name of peace and construction. And well, this is actually here to keep some level of order and, you know, and stability, which, you, you know, you, you, again, we it's say just, it, you, right. you, you figure it out for yourself. If right. you actually we trust report, you decide, but as Mike, but, as Mike has uh, talked uh, about with Sharia law, mm -hmm. you have a tough time thinking that exactly. You know, and, believing what anything that they're saying. Yeah. And I mean, the bottom line is, you know, you, listeners, you can decide that Taliban have announced at a press conference earlier this week, no Afghan citizens are going to get to the airport. Leave it at that. That you, Yeah. You can make, you know, I've told you what I think that means. We've discussed what we think that means. You can decide on your own what you think that means. Mm -hmm. But what we now know is when President Biden last week was saying, you know, that he is confident we're going to get out all those that assisted the United States over the last 20 years in Afghanistan that were Afghan residents, um, that that's not going to happen. We now know that's a fact because the Taliban control everything other than the airport, which as part of their deal basically has been, we give you the United States till August 31st to use this airport, but you don't have any say outside that airport and check, checkpoint Charlie's have been put in around the entire peripheral, and the mm -hmm. Taliban have said no Afghan residents, citizens are getting to that airport. Mm -hmm. So keep, keep go ahead. Oh, sorry, so, yeah, sec second big development. Apparently, this uh, reportedly the CIA director William Burns mm -hmm. has met with the top the Taliban's top political leader in Kabul. Um, this would have been on Monday. Um, so this is apparently the highest level. If, if this is true. This is the highest level meeting that the Taliban have had with any U.S. officials since them taking Afghanistan. So interesting to will happen. August thirty first is the is the red line. So we got a couple important dates coming up: the California recall on September fourteenth, this Taliban red line on August thirty first. So if you're a praying person, we encourage you to pray. There's there's significant consequences to the situation in Afghanistan for many lives, as I've talked about the. The, the Christian church, for example, is in, in Afghanistan is the second large, fastest growing church of any country in the world. And those people are in harm's way. And so if you're a praying person, we encourage you to pray for that. Mike, let's talk about the environment. That's what this episode's about, after all. Um, you were the regional administrator for the EPA under President Donald Trump. So you're certainly uh, a credible and uh knowledgeable person on this subject. T t talk to us about the environment. Well, what I want to do on this show is, I think, put to rest two myths. Myth number one is the environment is so much worse today than it's been in the past. And myth number two is the Trump administration was soft on the environment. Um, and I think I'll be able to clearly prove, you know, we were as strong on the environment as any prior administration, including the Obama administration. So let's go to myth number one, you know, uh, and, you know, I think, you know, um, Nolan and I have talked about this. Maybe we didn't do it in a podcast, but, you know, I know when I talk to a lot of millennials, they are convinced because, again, we talked on the I think the last show about, you know, how 
when you have a cause, when we're talking about nuclear power, you know, why don't we use it when it has zero carbon footprint? And I said, because, well, the environmental movement in the 70s used nuclear power as their cause to generate support, and it had to be opposed to. So in terms of just a policy debate on the facts, um, basically, nuclear power was, you know, people were indoctrinated into believing it's bad, it's, it can, you know, you can have these meltdowns and, you know, you are at serious risk. And, I, and as I said in, our la- in the last podcast, I, you know, I think the train's already pulled out of the station. I don't think that's true. I think we're losing a great opportunity. But I think, you know, and that's why Trump never even talked about let's, you know, go back to nuclear power, because I think the, the, the polling shows the public has come to a conclusion. And once sometimes it, once you get to a certain conclusion, you can't change that person's mind. Um, and I think the bottom line is you can't change the person's mind that nuclear power with the, the new generation of power plants, like what the French are doing and using, which France, which is a very environmentally conscious country, uh, 75, 80 percent of all their energy comes from nuclear power. Um, our public, the United, U, the, the U.S. public, the soccer moms out there have been indoctrinated into believing that nuclear power is so bad and that train's pulled out of the station. Well, in a similar way, I think our younger generation, and I don't know, this kind of place, I don't know, you have the millennials and then what's your other one that you often are your conflict yes, your, yeah, millennial or gen z depends on who you ask oh, gen z gen z oh, yeah. gen z i don't know sounds like sounds like a t anyway um i think that that generation um really truly believes because you know when i go out when, as epa regional administrator and i would go speaking in the colleges and places like that that the environment when i'd ask them do you think the environment's better today or is it worse today is this is this a, a cleaner healthier environment now i'm primarily speaking the united states um because that's the focus a lot of the people have and i'll talk about the global uh issue in terms of the united states versus the rest of the world when i talk about climate change a little bit later but Generally, about 80, 90 percent of the people in their 20s and 30s, when I'm talking to them, these are educated people say, no, the environment has to be a whole lot worse. Um, And I think that's because it ties into, you know, over the years, things like with climate change and tying into things are so much, you know, things are getting worse and worse and worse. That kind of gets extended to overall the environment, the the air quality, the water quality, um, the land quality. Uh, which I'll talk a little bit about, you know, you think of land and, and, and the environment and, and go, I, that doesn't really, I don't see, think of land is part of the environmental equation. I think of air and water, um, but actually, absolutely, uh, the EPA's stated mission is protect human health and environment. When we talk about the, the land, we have toxic, toxics in the, in the land. We have Superfund sites. We have gone out with, in terms of mining and uranium mines in Navajo Nation that led to uranium dust that we left those mines uh, that went into the streams and the rivers and contaminated a lot of Navajo Nation, which was one of my top priorities to address. So land, when you think of the environment, don't think just water and think of air. It's air, water, and land. It brings up what you, what you breathe in the air, the, the Mother Earth, uh, the land, and and the water you drink uh, to survive. So, 
you know, let's go down the facts in terms of where the environment is today. Um, and, and let's start with the nation's drinking water. In 1970, 40% of our nation's drinking water systems failed to meet the most basic clean water standards. So 40% in 1970. Today, over 92% of our water systems mean, meet all clean water standards. Sorry for the uh, background noise because we are in a cabana <laughs> and there is construction, I guess, taking place a couple of doors uh, a down. Bit, a little bit. So uh, that, that's, that's what you're hearing in the background. Um, you know, we make that sacrifice to be in the outdoor cabana. Right. We're, we're, so, we're being truthful. So, we're actually in the so 1970, 40% of our drinking water failed to meet basic clean water standards, some, some standard of a clean water standard. Today, 92% meets all the clean water systems uh, standards. Be between 2003 and 2017, the percentage of people in the U.S. Pacific Island territories, which would be Northern Mariana Islands, Guam, and America, Samoa, Samoa um, their, their safe drinking water increased from 39% to 82% between 2003 and 2017. Now, contrast that, let's go on the world stage. The United Nations claims 2.5 billion people around the world lack access to safe drinking water, leading to one to three million deaths every year with nearly a thousand children dying every day due to preventable water and sanitation related diseases. So at least as far as the United States is concerned, on the water front, there's, it's not even a debate. I mean, we are so much better off uh, in terms of safe drinking water. So let's go to the air. Mm -hmm. um, in 1970, and why I often use 1970, that was the year the, clean, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency was created. And I personally believe the Environmental Protection Agency, for the reasons as I go through all these statistics, the Environmental Protection Agency is probably one of the most, it's an America's success story of an agency created to deal with environmental you know, issues of the day uh, at a time when the air wasn't clean. The, the safe drinking water you know, levels were, were low, as I just reported. Places like the, the, the Great Lakes were contaminated with DDT. Um, it was, you know, I grew up down in the uh, in, in Arcadia in the San Gabriel Valley, and four miles—they're literally two to three miles away were the mountains. That almost half the time in the summer, I could not see those mountains. Um, again, you go to folks in their twenties and thirties, and so you know, you say, "Are do, are we better off?" And they'll say, "No, I, you know, we're worse off when it comes to the environment." So we've already talked about water on the air front. Back in 1970, again, when the EPA was created, through 2019, air pollution was reduced. And in the United States, they use eight particulate matters, eight different types of emissions from particulates uh, to monitor it, the, you know, is the air quality getting better or is it getting worse? So using those, the eight particulates that the EPA uses um, to gauge, from 1970 to 2019, air pollution was reduced by 74%, while the economy grew by over 285%, which is another theme you'll often hear me, um, you know, I, I, I talk about, I used to talk about it on the speaking trail as EPA administrator, I used to talk about it when I was uh, the elected, elected Santa Barbara County uh, uh, supervisor. Um, one of my, kind of my politics has often been, you don't have to be against the environment to be for the economy or be against the economy to be for the environment, 
again, I think a lot of people are indoctrinated into believing that. If I care about jobs and the economy, I gotta, I can't be for the environment. If I care about the environment, I can't care about the jobs. You can be for both. And the statistic I just gave you showed how successful the United States is. We reduced air pollution since 1970 by 74%, while the economy grew by over 285%. Um, between 1990 and 2018, average concentrations of harmful air pollutants decreased considerably across the nation. And I mean, ground level ozone fell 21%. Sulfide, uh, sulfur dioxide, SO2, fell 89%. Nitrogen dioxide fell 57%. Carbon monoxide fell 74%. Um, between 2000 and 2018, fine particulate matters fell 39%. Uh, between now we get into the climate change side for client, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. So somebody out there might be saying, okay, well, Stoker just rattled off numbers that I can't refute because those are, I don't make this up. They, I mean, go to go to Biden's EPA and they'll give you these same numbers. Uh, that the Trump administration EPA gave you, and this stuff all comes from the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. But somebody may say, well, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, maybe, you know, Stoker, what he's saying, the water got better and overall the air got better. Maybe you live in the San Gabriel Valley in Arcadia. You can see the mountains almost all the time now because the air pollution has gone down and the air is not as dirty and the air is not as harmful. Uh, and it's a much healthier environment um, that, that, that everybody in America is living in. But for those on the climate change, you know, bandwagon, they'll go, ah, but greenhouse gas emissions, that has to be, it's Armageddon. It's coming, the world's coming to an end. So it must be maybe Stoker's right on water and on overall air quality, but not greenhouse gas emissions. Well, between 2010, uh, or um, as far as greenhouse gas emissions, which are often referred to in the environmental world as GGEs, emissions dropped 12% since 2005. So. You know, there's a decrease again, um, and the most um, the, the most recent monitoring data overall for air quality. Now, this gets into environmental justice. I talked about, I think, on the uh, the last show a little bit, where environmental justice is basically that's an area that I actually gave the Biden administration on the last show a real plus. They they they're making environmental justice focus um, a much higher priority than the Trump administration did. Uh, as a regional administrator, I made environmental justice a very high priority in Region 9, which for the listeners, that, that Region 9 was the largest of the 10 regions, represented 60 million people, covered uh, eight time zones from Navajo Nation in New Mexico uh, to the east to the uh, Northern Mariana Islands, where it is 18 hours ahead of us right now, um, uh, to the west with Guam, America, Samoa, Hawaii, California, Arizona, Nevada in between. Um, the, the, the bottom line was I made environmental justice one of my top priorities, which is why my tribes, I had 148 tribes, and out of those tribes, 20 are very wealthy with gambling. The other 128 are not so wealthy. It's more what you think of on a poor tribal reservation. Uh, that's why I made them such a high priority uh, because they, they are what environmental justice is intended, to, is all about to help people like that. Our, our Pacific Island territories are nowhere near as wealthy as our states. That's why I made Pacific Island territories such a high priority. So when you're looking at environmental justice, generally in, you're, you're looking in the United States, in major cities, it's gonna be in your low income neighborhoods. They've taken the, the manufacturing plants are there. A lot of uh, our Superfund sites that exist throughout the United States are in your major cities 
where, you know, back in the 50s and the 40s and the 60s, they were producing in those neighborhoods, dumping all the toxins into the into the sewers, which was legal, that ultimately went into those groundwater basins that's in those communities. Well, when it comes to air quality in those communities, uh, so we're really talking environmental justice, based on the most recent monitoring data, more than 80% of low-income counties, so think of environmental justice, they're the ones that have been subjected to the worst of the worst when it comes to you know, toxins and things of that dirty air, dirty water. Um, more than 80% of low-income counties were in attainment with the EPA's national ambient air quality standards compared to 43% in 2008. So that's, you know, a huge, um, a vast difference. Now, I've just given you how much better air quality is, including greenhouse gas emissions for all of you on the, the climate change agenda. You know, I, told, I just showed you Greenhouse gas emissions have gone down here. Now, this is really important when we really spend some time later on, on climate change. Contrast what I just told you about the America to China. China has seen an increase in air pollution by 50% since 2005. Now, we already know how bad the air was in 2005. It's increased 50%. And, you know, probably this will be a, a good time to, you know, take our nonprofit break. But the bottom line, and we're going to talk about this later, when you look at the environment, um, America, the United States is not the problem. We're the solution. If all the other countries would have had these kind of numbers, China, India, Pakistan, you know, all, all, all of Europe. I guarantee nobody would have a bully pulpit to talk about how bad things are when it comes to the environment. The United States is the solution. We're not the problem. Fascinating, fascinating discussion. Mike, that's really interesting. We're going to have a little bit more on the environment on the, on the back half here, but we are going to have our nonprofit moment. So if you tuned in the last program, you, you know, we're, we're giving an opportunity for nonprofits um, in the middle of the show to to uh, tell us a little bit about them. And so we're going to do that right now. And then we'll be back. Episode four on the environment. This is the Mike Stoker podcast. I'm Dean Wilson, the president and CEO of the Turner Foundation. On December 16th, we will host our legacy gala with NBA basketball greats Magic Johnson and Jerry West at the Rosewood Miramar Beach, presented by Farmers and Merchants Bank. On Friday, December 17th, we'll host the Jerry West Golf Classic at the Sandpiper Golf Club. We would love for you to join us. For information on sponsorship and tickets, please call 805-730-1200 or go to theturnerfoundation.com. Welcome back. To the cabana 68 degrees slight ocean breeze in the cabana today we're talking about the environment this is episode four of the mike stoker podcast encourage you to check out one two and three tell a friend today on episode four we're talking about the environment it's been fascinating i've learned a lot myself in the first half hour uh, but mike's going to continue on we're talking about uh, the realities of the last 50 years just statistically and then Mike's going to talk a little bit more about that, about uh, the Trump administration he was part of, and about climate change in general. So, Mike, 
take it away. So, you know, just finishing up in terms of are we better or not and better off. And I just told you or gave you a statistic of uh, how the um, national ambient air quality standards, how much they vastly improved, you know, in, in the low income uh, counties of this country, which is, again, environmental justice. Um, that's generally in the low income areas. Uh, of the inner cities, you're going to find the blunt of major environmental challenges. Uh, and, that, and that's where Superfund sites come in. And that's where there's also toxic release of chemicals into the air, because anytime you have manufacturing, something goes into the air. We've been able through scrubbers and that to reduce that significantly, which is why the air is so much cleaner. You know, the analogy and I often make to anybody who remembers a car back in 1960, you know, if you you know were if you're if you're a baby boomer, then you remember seeing all the cars with all the exhaust coming out, and you don't see that anymore because the the automobile is basically 98% now cleaner, more efficient, uh, based on catalytic converters and what we do to make what comes out of the tailpipe so much cleaner. We do the same thing with our factories. That's why you have coal scrubbers. That's why coal factories are much cleaner today than they were 40, 50 years ago. Um, so. Back to that whole environmental justice in the low-income areas that I just gave the air quality. One of the things that started with the EPA starting in, in 2007, they had what's called the TRI, which is the Toxic Release Inventory. And every year they do an inventory uh, in the major cities of the chemicals, uh, and there's 650 that are reported. Um, and uh, in since 19 or since 2007, the Toxic Release Inventory has been reduced by 11% in air and 20% in water. Because when those manufacturers often they're going into the, they got stacks, it goes in the air. They often have a, a water process that gets discharged into a stream, an ocean, you know, wherever. So there's another example that, you know, that the inventory and keeping in mind this started in 2007, between 1970 when the EPA was created and 2007, by 2007, these companies, these manufacturers had already implemented like coal scrubbers, things like that. They came into play, you know, 20 years ago uh, just to meet the air quality standards of the of the Clean Air Act. Uh, manufacturers converted to much more clean burning, much more efficient sources. So this decrease is a decrease with state of the art, what's called in the environmental world, best available control technology, BACT. Um, so it, it means that we just continually get better. So there's the state of the environment. You know, it, it, if anything, I mentioned in, in the first half of the, the show, you know, celebrate the Environmental Protection Agency. I, you know, that greatest honor of my life was to work with the career men and women. I've never worked with such passionate, professional, dedicated people in my life. These people over the last 50 years um, and those appointed by various presidents have created one of the, the greatest American success stories. Any way you look at the EPA and what it's accomplished is a huge American success story that no other country has ever duplicated. And again, if they would have, if other countries would have been doing what I said going out of the first segment, we're not the problem, we're the solution. Look at our last 50 years. And there is nobody that comes close, not even, I mean, anywhere near as close as us in regards to that, those accomplishments. So let me go to the second myth. Hopefully I've addressed myth number one, the environment's that much worse off. Myth number two, the Trump administration that we were soft on, you know, you know, you know we didn't care about the environment. I, 
I can tell you, it's in my book that's coming out in the fall inside Trump's EPA, the way it works when you're appointed a regional administrator, when you get sworn in, you no longer coordinate with the White House uh, in terms of policy because they have an administrator that's been appointed. And in this case, it was originally Scott Pruitt, and then it was Andrew Wheeler. And you don't, you can't have your regional administrators for any federal agency going and going, hey, you know, Administrator Wheeler is saying this or saying that. You know, are you sure you want to do this? You know, you, president appoints the administrator. And a president, you know, has to have the confidence the administrator's doing the right things. Um, in my book, I'll uh, question some of the things Wheeler did, and I don't think they were so right. But in, in terms of the, 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 the directive for the environment, the last thing I was told before I got sworn in by the White House was we want to leave. We want this administration, when we leave, to leave cleaner air, cleaner water, and cleaner land. That was... They said, and in terms of regulations, we don't support reducing or eliminating any regulations that provide us cleaner air, cleaner water, cleaner land. We only want you to, to re, re, reduce or eliminate regulations that in the name of the environment, don't do anything for the environment, but cost businesses and people that have to deal with environmental rules and regulations, additional time and money and we deregulated 42 regulations uh, and those it's estimated saved our businesses 59 or uh, um, 5.9 billion dollars a year uh, which was a great accomplishment that nothing was sacrificed on the environment I, I talked about on the last show on the Biden scorecard unfortunately they're reversing all that and that's sad because just going to cost businesses more time, more money. Some of those will put some businesses out of business. And those things that we eliminated did not, you know, it did not do one thing to protect the environment. So now let's talk about overall, you know, then get to the guts of was this an administration soft on the environment or not? Well, anyone that deals with a regulatory agency, any attorney out there, I think will tell you the best way to check where you're softer on the environment or harder on the environment or just about the same is go look to the enforcement division. The Environmental Protection Agency has an enforcement division because we that's what we do. The EPA, one of the things I talk about in the book, everybody thinks it was just this giant monolithic enforcement agency out to play gotcha. That's about 5% of it. It's, I mean, 60% of the EPA's budget goes to, uh, uh, goes to grants and funding for clean air, clean water, clean land with tribes, Pacific Island territories, city, county, states. Um, but there is a enforcement division and we're very serious about it. And when you, we are take very seriously in enforcing the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act and the environmental laws that are on the books or the environmental regulations on the books. And so when you're at, and not in compliance, you take actions against somebody. So I think a great first gauge on was Trump softer than Obama is let's look at enforcement actions. Yeah. Well, I'm proud to have been a part of the Trump's EPA, and if you look at the Trump's EPA, there was a 48% increase in, crimin in criminal cases for violating environmental laws between 2017 and 2019. 48%. So if Trump just didn't care and is, hey, you know, I'm just for business, I would think there would have been a directive by us, hey, don't go after these businesses. But it was just the contrary. We increased over the Obama administration by 48%. Uh, you think your millennial friends, do they believe that? 
Probably no one. No, uh, no. <laughs> they, they, they would be they would rate like look at you and say, really? Well, my baby boomer friends would probably say the same exact thing. So the baby boomer friends would say the same exact thing. And because I think, you know, there was that narrative we've talked about it in other shows. You know, often campaigns are based on negative campaigning and you try to, you know, it's not accurate. It's not factual. Very few campaigns or candidates are 100 percent factual, folks. I think you all realize that, um, you know, and you uh, it's based on spin. And, you know, probably that most most people that supported Trump's policies would have thought, well, yeah, he'd be soft on the environment, certainly be much more softer than well, Obama's at, at EPA. Enforcement actions went up 48 percent in crimp for criminal cases for violations of environmental law. Um, you know, I can tell you on a personal front, uh, uh, one of those areas, which I, I, I will ne never understand why, while prior administrations, Bush, Obama, didn't make it an issue, and I'll never really understand. Uh, in Region 9, we I made it an issue. We had a case, uh, an enforcement action against a company called Derive. And derive manufacturers what are called defeat devices. You know, I talked about earlier in this show and the last show about how we have our, our automobiles are so much cleaner. We have catalytic converters. What these de defeat device companies do is you could go to the auto the auto shop uh, auto shop, buy the defeat device, put it on your car. It basically negates the catalytic converter. You do get performance; car goes faster, but the air pollution. It's back to those cars like uh, decades ago. And these manufacturers have been out there. The uh, um, the, the auto shops that sell, you know, the, 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 these equipment are out there. And I found that outrageous when I got in as the administrator. And they're, they're more prominent uh, in the West. So that affect my region more than anything. And I said, this is an outrage that people... Are, you know, when you have environmental laws on the book, it's not fair to basically tell all these people, these companies, you got to play by the rules. And then these companies, you don't have to. You're paying by the rules. You're, pay, you're paying more cost. You're investing more in a cleaner environment. And I've, I, I just find the, somebody that violates the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, a company that really doesn't know it, there's an enforcement action. You're going to get a fine, depending on what you ha how bad it was. Uh, and if you really were innocent, there's educational on to not do it again. Region 9, well, Trump's EPA overall, Region 9 was a top priority. I had the pleasure of originally who was my chief of staff, who I, am, I appointed as the enforcement division director, Amy Miller, who will be there for, a, she'll be enforcing the Region 9 laws for several, several, several years and ultimately probably will become a deputy regional administrator. One one of the reasons I appointed her was we, we took enforcement so serious, but we also took compliance as, as 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 seriously in terms of educating like on pesticide workshops to agricultural companies so they wouldn't violate our pesticide laws. Um, compliance is so important. So what you do with compliance, our environmental laws are so technical. The smaller you are as a company. It, it, it can become very easy to violate a state or a federal environmental law. That's why the compliance educational workshops are so important. So when I got on board, all of a sudden I'm looking at these de defeat device manufacturers and, and nobody was going after them. Prior administrations never went after them. 
And I told Amy, I said, I want to, I, I want to take this company derive and I want to, I want to make them the poster child. I want to send a message. Region nine is going to take this real serious. We're going to shut you down. You're not going to, you are not going to knowingly make these devices and on the open market side and be very blatant about it. And we made a national case out of derive, which US EPA then made taking on and taking down defeat device manufacturers or distributors a national top priority, which is why basically now defeat devices in this country are no, you won't find them. Wow. You you could have bought them over the counter very easily with the Obama administration. So when you talk about the enforcement actions, I told you that and that and I talk about this as an example, because that's an enforcement action. Mm -hmm. It was an enforcement action that wasn't, there was no action in the prior administration. And those companies were allowed to take a car and basically eliminate the catalytic converter, which is what gives us cleaner air from automobile uh, emissions. So, you know, that's an, another thing that the, the Trump EPA did. We, um, another thing that I never really understood um, that the Trump EPA basically took on what are called PFOs and PFAS. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the, the chemical, the whole, I couldn't do it. But anybody out there, what PFOs and PFAS are, they're the chemical that's used in your um, fire retardants and also in your rain repellents. So if the jacket you're wearing there has an element to beat up the water, that's a PFO or PFA chemical that was used. Um, and fire retardants that we use on our airports and fire, you know, the fire department, you know, your, your, uh, you know, fire extinguisher, that, those are all PFOs and PFAS. Well, as a result of using all that, PFOs and PFAS have gotten into the water, our, our groundwater. Um, and, under, and basically it is a very serious, significant problem. The, Obama administration knew about it. The Bush administration knew about it. The Clinton, it's been around for 20 years. I mean, we've known about it for at least 20 years. No prior administration took it on because once you acknowledge it, you own it. You know, it, and we all know the, the horrors of dealing with lead in the water in Detroit. And you know, mm -hmm. it, what you, when you're dealing with regulating it under the Clean Water Act, um, back to that, when I gave you the numbers earlier that the drink, safe drinking water is that safe, we have about 650 chemicals that the EPA has established what's called an MCL, a maximum contaminant level. And that's the level that if it gets exceeded in water, mercury, copper, lead, you know, 650 chemicals, all of a sudden you do not have safe drinking water. And all it takes is one of those 650 chemicals. For whatever reason, all the prior administrations did not want to establish an MCL, maximum contaminant level, for PFOs and PFAS. Because now, under when you establish it, and you got to go through the regulatory process, rulemaking, through science, you get input and data, because you're going to decide, here's that magic number, parts per million, parts per trillion, parts per billion, that if it exceeds it, you don't have safe drinking water anymore. And I, 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 and we all knew, you know, and it was Trump administration, with with Administrator Pruitt, uh, in 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 the spring of 2018, announced at a major major um, one day event where he invited the counties and cities and states representatives 
at that PFOS and PFAS that this administration was going to establish an MCL, that it would become the 600 and basically 651st max chemical that now would be in, in our, our, we went through that process. Um, I believe that the maximum contaminant level, I don't know, I don't think the regulation, excuse me, has been officially formally adopted. And I'm sure now that we've, Again, once you expose it, once you talk to the public about it, it, it's out there. So the Biden administration is going to continue to adopt. They're, they will adopt what we started if it wasn't already adopted. And I'm just not sure whether it was or not by the time the, the, the Trump administration was over. It will be adopted. And for the first time, maximum contaminant levels for PFOS and PFAS will have been established. And nobody ever wanted to go down that road because we all know that that's going to make a lot of what is considered safe drinking water today, not a safe tomorrow. Um, again, Obama administration didn't do that. I don't know why it was, we all knew about it. We did, uh, the lead and what's called the lead and copper rule. Um, the lead and copper thresholds for how much lead and copper is allowed to be in the water, uh, had, had, had not been revisited since 2000. Since 2000, and certainly in the last 10 years, we've learned a whole lot about um, lead and copper and in, in how it affects children and the amount of school in, their, in the school drinking water supply. Uh, that was a real problem. Yet during the eight years of the Obama administration, they never chose to revise the lead and copper rule. The Trump administration did. We lowered the numbers. Not only that, um, I forget what it was called. Um, I think it was called the Healthy Schools Grant Program. That was started in the Trump administration. And what that did was it, it provided, I think, as I remember, it was in 2019, $50 million was allocated by EPA. Again, I mentioned earlier, it's the myth of this, EPA is this giant monolithic enforcement agency, and that's all they do. That's 5%. What we do do is accomplish the mission stated mission, provide for human health and, and, and the environment, and a lot of funding for clean air, clean water, and clean land. And we started in the Trump administration, the Healthy Schools Grant Program. And in 2019, as I re recall, we provided $50 million that were allocated to the nation's public schools with lead in their drinking water uh, to, to help them deal with that, that, that issue. So again, there's the Trump administration taking the initiative in the schools. We took the initiative that the Obama administration didn't to lower the lead and copper thresholds in the safe drinking water in, the, in terms of what you know, drinking water um, is allowed to be contained. So again, you know, if you take the narrative, we're soft on the environment, why would we do that? There's no reason to do that. Um, that just, that just, all that means uh, is you're going to have that, that, that much more that's going to have to be allocated to that, to, getting cleaner water when it comes to lead and copper, cleaner water when it comes to PFOS and PFOS. Um, on the air side, uh, one of the big frustrating things, and I talk about it in my book, uh, on, on cleaner air, our local, our state can control, or our like you could take our county and this across the region, you have what are called air pollution control districts or air quality management district. Santa Barbara County, we have a standalone we can control and the state of California through the Air Resources Board can create state laws that for basically what are called stationary sources, we can control stationary. It's in the state of California. 
we can't control mobile sources because of the Commerce Clause, Tenth Amendment. State, state, or uh, I, I forget what, what uh, I think it's Tenth Amendment, but whatever the Commerce Clause is, constitutionally, a state can't regulate things that are coming interstate. So we were never allowed, no state was allowed to do anything in terms of regulating the automobile. That was done by EPA with national standards. All the things I've talked about with cleaner air, that was by the EPA. And on another subject, we will talk about exceptions the EPA granted to California because the EPA can give rights to states, but without granting it, a state doesn't have a right to take that extra action. And there was an example where the EPA granted for fuel economy standards in terms of the state of California, what you could require in the gasoline and what to require in terms of fuel economy standards for emissions gave California greater rights than other states. Um, but that's for another topic. Back, back to the, the stationary sources, our air pollution control districts can only control what's, on, what's stationary. We can't control what are called mobile sources, which are, air, which are the automobile, which are the interstate trucking, which are trains and which are marine vessels, cargo ships. That's significant because you take, take um, Santa Barbara County under, I was proud as County Supervisor under my reign with things that we did. Ironically, we downsized the air pollution control district. We eliminated a lot of the crazy regulations that didn't do anything to get cleaner air, but saved our, our, our uh, small businesses money. And it was two years after that, um, in 1992, that for the first time, Santa Barbara County was in attainment with the federal clean air standards, uh, which is a, in the environmental world, attainment is a buzzword. Attain, you want attainment. That means you've met the minimum standards for where your air quality can be. Uh, one of the worst non-attainment districts in the country is the South Coast Air Quality Management District, which is Riverside and uh, 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 San Bernardino, Los Angeles, Orange County. 80% of their, the reason for them in non-attainment is because of mobile sources, sources that they can't control. The sources that are basically out there um, from the trains, from the automobile, uh, from the marine vessels, 40% uh, of all the imports in the United States come through the port of, of Long Beach, all those cargo ships. South Coast Air Quality Management District is penalized for not being in attainment, but they can't control any of those sources. Uh, what we did in the Trump administration, the automobile was dealt with decades ago with the EPA. We took on the, 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 trucking, uh, the trucking association uh, and we created the Clean Truck Initiative. And the Clean Truck Initiative under the Trump administration, never did what happened under Obama, uh, and, and under the Trump administration, basically what we did was we established and what we put in, in play with our regulations it will reduce the emissions by interstate trucking by 2025 by over 35% because we created for interstate trucking federal uniform emission standards for those trucks like we did for the automobile decades ago. That will be huge in regards to places like the South Coast Air Quality Management District that has all those interstate trucks going through their, what I advocate for in my book and I hope the Biden administration will do it. And maybe I'll give them a B plus then the next time we talk about it. The Biden administration needs to do what, what was done decades ago for the automobile, what we did for the interstate trucks, 
they have to take it to the next level for all mobile sources, for the, tr for the trains and for the marine vessels. It's estimated that by 2030, 80% of the reason, 80% of the air, while why the South Coast Air Quality Management District will not be in attainment is because of the marine vessels, because of the cargo ships coming into the Port of Los Angeles and in Long Beach. Again, that bring in 40% of our imports. Um, so we we have that that's something I hope the Biden administration does, but again, we have the Trump administration took on the trucking association. They don't want this. This means they're going to have, you know, ultimately they'll be fine 10 years from now because they would have adopted. But anytime you, you do something like that, there has to be a change. There's going to be conversions going to, you know, it's going to be costing them more money with their trucks. Um, but it was the Trump administration that went from uh, taking on mobile sources, uh, Started with the automobile decades ago with, I don't know whether it probably was under Nixon, um, might have been under Carter, definitely by Reagan's days. I think it was the late 70s. It might have been the Carter administration. It was our administration that took on the, the trucks and hopefully to, to, to finalize the regulating all mobile sources that our local air pollution control districts and the states can't, hopefully the Biden administration will take on the um, um, the the, the trains and and the and the marine vessels and and which will be a huge huge benefit to all air quality districts that are in non-attainment. Um, so you know, with that, I know I said we we're going to talk about climate change. I think we should. This we'll end our podcast today on this, and I think we'll pick up our next podcast with climate change because there's a lot that needs to be discussed on that subject alone. I think in terms of the myths and the reality. So uh, we'll leave it today on, we dealt with the myths of, you know, was the Trump administration soft on the environment? I think I've made a pretty good case. We were as strong or stronger than you can argue Obama. And the myth that the environment overall is so much worse off when, you know, we're the role model and we've been the, we've been the solution. We haven't been the problem. And on our next podcast, we'll bring up climate change. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff on the Mike Stoker podcast. This is episode four we were talking about the environment i uh, hope you'll check out one through three episode five coming soon so glad you're with us it's, it's great to be here it's great to have this multi-generational podcast in the cabana we're a half a mile from the pacific ocean and we love having you with us tell a friend about the mike stoker podcast and we'll see you next time